What if every last Christian were just a complete and total hypocrite? Like what if there were not a single example of authentic Christianity anywhere? What if of all the Christians of all the world, of all the generations who claimed Christianity, not a single one of them represented it accurately? Christianity would still be true. There's a meme that goes around the internet and it catalogs and chronicles the worst examples of Christians behaving badly. And it's used as an argument against Christianity. My skeptical friend, you may have been prevented from coming to Christ because of the hypocrisy of a Christian, somebody who claimed Christ but then lived a completely different way, who claimed to love Jesus but didn't love you, who claimed to believe that certain things were sinful yet his or her life was just riddled with exactly that sin he or she called out. Here's the truth. Even if, even if we as Christians fail completely, totally, and utterly to embody what Christianity teaches, Christianity itself as a worldview is still intact. I know that it's frustrating. I know that it can be beyond frustrating, even wounding, depending on your story, to see people lift up the name of Jesus and then defame him with their lives. Do you know that God is just as fed up with hypocrites as you are? My skeptical friend, my militant atheist friend. In fact, he has some of the harshest words in the Bible, not for you really, but for them, as they would honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And can we, can we level on this for just a minute? Because you are correct. You are absolutely right to call out hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a bad thing. Now, pause right there. We agree on that. I know why hypocrisy is a bad thing, but my, especially my atheist friend, you don't actually have any grounds for why that's bad. As a nihilist, somebody who believes that life came from absolute nothingness and ends in absolute nothingness, morality really is a delusion. And so you don't have any ground to stand on when you call hypocrisy bad and integrity good. Now, I, I know that. I'm an imperfect person who believes the gospel. I know why hypocrisy is bad. But would you consider just for a moment that your desire to call out hypocrisy in Christians calls you out by default. The fact that you would hold Christians to a standard means that you likewise believe that standard is authoritative. When you say that hypocrisy is a bad thing, by what standard are you calling it bad? So Christian and non-Christian alike, we all get to be called out by Romans chapter two. We as a church are moving book by book through the Bible and we've arrived here at Romans chapter two. I'm Jesse Campbell, I'm the lead pastor at Highlands Community Church. A special welcome to everybody who is a part of our Upward program. Let's look at Romans chapter two together. We're gonna to look at the first 16 verses. Now the first 16 verses are sometimes debated as to who the original audience really was. I believe that Paul in all of chapter two is speaking directly to first century Jews. And he is describing to them how God will use the law, a 
upon our hearts and on our consciences to convict and ultimately convince Gentiles that Jesus is Lord, while Jews themselves hold the law and often don't live up to it. So as he writes originally to an audience of Jews, the very fact that there's some debate as to whether or not he was speaking to Jews or Gentiles in verses 1 through 16, to me, indicates something beautiful about this passage. It was originally intended for Jews, but it applies quite directly to Gentiles as well. That means it applies directly to you and I as well as we read it today. So let's look at Romans chapter 2 together. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened heart, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. There's a common way of raising your kids by lifting up the family name and saying, you know, like, we're Campbells, we don't do this. That's not how Campbells act. If that's been a tradition in your family and it's borne good fruit in your life and your parents used it to call you to a higher standard, if you've seen this used as a standard to bring about good things in your own kids, please don't be too offended by what I'm about to say, but my wife and I don't do that. And it's because we know by our very nature we are sinful. That when we see our kids sin, we know exactly why. And our last name is irrelevant, like we're all born into a sin nature. When I see my sons caught in sin, I'll sit with them and level with them and say, I understand. I face the same temptations too. I don't want to lift up our our last name, our family legacy. I don't want to put on them some sort of pressure like they have to live up to the standard that, that we hold because I know that I have sin too. I have my own sin as well. Rather, what I want to invite my kids into is the same grace in which I abide and my bride abides. When you're a Christian pastor and there's sin going on and you have sin in your own heart, in your own life, your own past, what are you to do? You know, I don't 
call people to repent from sin because I'm super perfect. No, rather, I'm inviting sinners into the same grace that I abide in myself. I am, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a Dodge salesman who drives a Dodge. <laughs> I'm, I'm inviting you into this grace that I found in Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to call you to my standard to live like me. I do seek holiness in my life, but I fail sometimes. Rather, I'm going to invite you into the same grace that is greater than all of my sins. In Romans chapter 2, Paul refers to Gentiles or Greeks as they and Jews, especially beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, as you. So he refers to Greeks and Gentiles as they. When he speaks to Jews, he says you. So he's using the Jewish understanding of the law to show how God uses the law to judge both Jews and Greeks. Greeks may not have the law by their nature, but they show that the law is written on their hearts. We have consciences that give us basic convictions, even more far from God. And these convictions, if you will, excuse or condemn us because by our consciences, we, consciences we know right from wrong. Even peoples who are isolated deep in the wilderness, far away from the Torah, the Old Testament, know that murder is wrong and have laws against murder, for example. We know in our heart of hearts, the marrow of our bones, that murder is wrong. And so, by our consciences, we show that God has written his law upon our hearts. So even if you don't believe in the Old Testament, you're going to see the work of the Old Testament law in your heart, in your conscience. Let's go back through the text. Let's look at individual pieces because these are important. The most popular verse that I've heard among many of my skeptical friends over the years, and especially on social media, anytime somebody does something that's bad and it's public and people speak condemningly of it, even people who disavow all knowledge of God, any relationship with Jesus, will be very quick to say the words, judge not lest ye be judged. You ever heard these words? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Like the word lest is funny. We never use that word. I only know what that means. I think people are trying to quote the King James Bible when they say this. But doing a search and a digital concordance over the King James, I don't see those words anywhere in the King James Bible. Here's the closest thing I can find to it. It's, it's James 5, 9 in the King James. It reads, Grudge not one against another brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth at the door. I think that's pretty funny because the King James never actually says judge not. It says grudge not. So let's switch the meme. <laughs> grudge not your brethren. Don't hold grudges against one another. Be forgiving and show mercy and grace one to the other. Now, I believe, I believe when this judge not, lest ye be judged thing goes around, I think what people are really going for, they might be trying to quote Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. See, that, that's what I think they're really going for is Matthew 7, 1. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? I don't care who you are, that's funny. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. 
First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. When we stop at verse 1 of Matthew 7, do not judge so that you won't be judged, what we arrive at is this, this conclusion that we should never use basic judgment, that we should let hypocrisy utterly slide by. Jesus never told us to abandon all judgment. Rather, what he tells us is, do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. Meaning, make sure you have your own house in order before you call somebody out. But doesn't the text say, especially in this humorous illustration, if you see a speck in your brother's eye but you have a plank of wood in your own eye, first take the plank out of your own eye. Why? So that you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It doesn't say, let your brother go and live his whole life with that speck in his eye and never call him out, never set him free from his sin, never invite him into grace and repentance and accountability. Rather, it says, first, remove the plank from your own eye. Now, that's pretty remarkable because as we apply Jesus' parable, that means a guy who once had a plank in his own eye is now inviting somebody who has a speck in his eye to repent. So the common use judge not lest ye be judged, would simply say, look, never exercise basic judgment. Let sin just run rampant. Did you know that there's actually a verse in the Bible that tells Christians to use judgment, to judge those within the church? Here's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. <laughs> but actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders remove the evil person from among you. Wow, this verse actually calls us to judge believers. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 5, he's referring to some egregious sexual sin that was going on in the life of a believer who was a part of the community, part of the church in Corinth. And Paul is telling this church to exercise church discipline upon this guy. Matthew 18, we have clear instructions when your brother sins, Right, that you confront him one-on-one. -on -one. If he doesn't sin, you bring two or three witnesses. If he still doesn't sin, you bring him to the larger, larger fellowship. And if he still doesn't confess sin, repent, then you treat him like you would an outsider or a tax collector, which in our context at Highlands Community Church, that means we're going to treat you like a non-believer. We're going to share the gospel with you. We're going to invite you to receive Christ. This is also where we see the clear teaching where two or more are gathered, I am in their midst. Sometimes this is misapplied as though to say, okay, we have two people in Bible study, that means that God is here. No, God was there with you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, Christian. Even if you're just, even if you're just right there by yourself, you can abide in fellowship with Christ. I believe that this speaks to Matthew 18, church discipline, enacting what Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, that when you confront your brother over his sin, that God is there. That means that when you confess your sin to fellow believers, God is there in your midst. Take it from me. I, I have confessed sin here. And you know what I've been met with? The presence of God in grace. There should be candor in a church that should make an AA meeting blush 
because here we have atoning grace. So don't just allow hypocrisy to run rampant all around you. Don't, certainly don't let it happen in your own heart. First, fix your own heart and then invite your brothers and sisters who are failing in that regard into the grace, the same grace in which you abide. When you do this, you're gonna find grace. I've confessed personal sin to the elders of Highlands Community Church. I've been met with grace and accountability that secures repentance. I wanna invite you into the same kind of godly church life where you confess your sins to one another, James chapter five says, and then you're healed. It is such a beautiful thing to have authenticity, to confess sin and to be met with love and grace. This way, this way, people aren't just showing love to the mask that you put on, but you take the mask off, you let them know the deep dark things about yourself and then you're shown love right there in your most vulnerable, right there in your most known Right, wherever appropriate your misdeeds exposed and you receive grace and mercy right there, then that is truly you experiencing love, not your mask intercepting it. I want to encourage you, like we studied in Ephesians, set aside falsehood. Speak truthfully with your neighbor because we are all Christians, members of one body. That's what I believe is happening in 1 Corinthians 5. There was a man in their presence who was just flagrantly sinning. Everybody knew it, which means we're well past step three of Matthew 18's instructions for how to exercise church discipline, and nothing was happening. Everybody was acting like this sin is totally okay. I mean, the man was behaving in a way that was sexually absolutely despicable, and nobody was calling it out. So Paul just encourages them quite sternly, do what you know you're supposed to do. Expel the immoral believer from among you. Why? Because he was never really a part of your fellowship. This man needs to be engaged with the gospel all over again. I believe they are called here in 1 Corinthians 5 to do what they ought to have done before, according to Matthew 18's instructions. Right, this, is, this amounts to excommunication, treating somebody like you would a tax collector or a non-believer. And in my personal interpretation, that means you start all over again with the gospel. Now, in verse 3, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things that you do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Okay, when we talk about God's judgment, there are a few different a few different ways to look at this because believers stand in judgment before God and it's one experience. People who don't believe stand in judgment before God and it's quite a different experience. There are two basic judgment seats and there's some debate around these, but all in all, the terminology that we use for the kind of judgment that non-believers face when they stand before God, we call that the great white throne judgment. And we see that in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. But believers likewise, we too will stand in judgment before God, but we refer to that as the Bema seat uh, in, in Romans 14. 9 through 12. All right, here's, here is Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. This is what we call the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And uh, another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So here we see believers and non-believers. If your name is written in the book of life, you receive life. If it isn't, you are cast into this lake of fire. If you've ever wondered where that language comes from, it comes from here. It comes from the word of God. It's Revelation chapter 20. And then we see in the very book that we're studying now, in Romans chapter 14, the description of, an, of another kind of judgment, the kind of judgment that believers will face. All right, now this is, this is interesting. You probably didn't think about this, Christian. Let's talk about how believers stand in judgment before God. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Jesse, you just read in 1 Corinthians 5 that we're to use judgment on our brother. And then you read from Romans 14, wherein we're told not to judge our brother. So which one is it? I believe that 1 Corinthians 5 means calling out this professing believer for the flagrant sin in his life that he hasn't repented of. And I believe that Revelation 14 describes all of us standing in judgment before God. We don't actually know. We're not in a position to say who is saved and who isn't saved. As a pastor, I never make the authoritative proclamation like you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. I think we're going to be surprised at who's in heaven and who's not in heaven. And then the text goes on to tell us that God's kindness in verse 4 is intended to lead us to repentance. All right, here's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, that's being alive physically, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is an amazing passage to teach at funerals for Christians. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So I believe that this judgment seat, whether it is the great white throne wherein people who are without Christ stand in judgment before Christ and see that they are far from him, or it is the Bema seat, whether we as believers give an account to God for all that we have done, I want you to know, I want you to see that this could actually be a beautiful experience for the believer. Now, it's not an exciting prospect to stand before God and give an account for every sin that you've committed. But I want you to also remember that even as you stand before God and, and you give an account for all that you've done, good or evil, that the atoning work of Christ is more than sufficient to pay the full price for every last one of your evil works. And so this Bema seat judgment where the believer stands before God, I believe will feel like a pardon wherein your offenses are listed all in the context of being forgiven for them, where you are imputed with the righteousness of Jesus, even though you are guilty of sin and he is sinless. You, as you give an account for the evil things that you've done, you could say that though you lied, you have been pardoned of this sin. You've been forgiven for this, imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. Even though you've committed adultery, that you, if you are a professing believer, you've been forgiven for this, you've been pardoned for this, that you, though you've committed murder, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you are pardoned, you are forgiven. It's like standing before the judgment seat and hearing all of your charges listed and then dropped, all 
paid for and atoned in full by the work of Jesus. Though you are a sinner, you will stand before the judge justified because his son went to the cross, paid the full price for your sin, and thereafter rose again from the dead in victory over that. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that this Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so, somebody who has struggled with sin to fellow sinners, I want to invite you into this kind of judgment. You know how this works. You know how this goes. Especially if you're a parent. You say, you say go to bed the first time. Now, ideally, our kids will listen to us the very first time. But oftentimes in my house, I mean, if this is not the way it goes at your house, you're a way better parent than I am. Oftentimes, you got to say it again. And then you might have to say it a third time. Now, in my house, there's not going to be a fourth time. But every time you say go to bed, it takes on a different tone. The first one is, all right, let's go to bed, little ones. And the second one, go to bed. <laughs> and then the, by the time we get to the third one, your voice changes, the volume escalates, the stakes raise. Now, it would be foolish of a little Campbell kid to say, you know, dad said go to bed a couple of times already and I haven't and nothing's happened so far. I haven't suffered any consequences yet for disobeying, so I think I'm going to get away with this. That would be foolish because there is a coming judgment and it's dad. Now what I want is my, my children to obey me. They climb into their bunk beds. They each have their own rooms, but they all sleep in one. The boys all want to sleep in one. We had to go from one bed to a bunk bed because every morning we'd wake up and see Asher in Austin's bed and so we bought them bunk beds and then sure enough Asa was born joins the party and he's got to sleep with them too and so now we have a trundle bed we have a we have three beds in one room they all have their own this is what they do so I love to stand in the doorway and sing to them their lullabies sing to them their songs some of you are on the first go to bed some of you are on the second some of you are on the third some of you are on the 14th or 40th do not mistake God's patience with you don't mistake it for spinelessness. Don't mistake it for the ability to get away with this. Don't be so foolish as to believe that you could get away with your sin and not answer for it. Don't wait until the third go to bed. Don't wait until the 50th go to bed. Listen to God now because the stakes are raising and the only reason you haven't experienced his judgment yet, non-Christian, or his discipline yet, Christian, is that he is kind to you and his kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So repent today, repent right now. I've repented from my sin. I strive to remain in that repentance day after day. I want you to join me in the same grace in which I abide. I want you to know that there's grace here, but you've got to confess that sin. 1 John 1, 9 is beautifully clear. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if the prospect of standing in judgment before God shakes your heart, it should, it should. So whether you are a Christian who's been rebelling from God I want you to confess your sin. Or if you're a non-Christian, you're being compelled by the Holy Spirit of God right there in the coffee shop, right there in your living room. I want you to pray with me these five verses out to God. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son. And if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. God, I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess that the wages of my sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus.
I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I know there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So right here and now, drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of the living God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord out loud right now? Just say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. And stand in judgment before you, pardoned, and though once guilty, now found guiltless by the atoning work of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a beautiful prospect, that though we've committed sins, we are hypocrites no more. Once we have confessed, we've repented, we know that we abide in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so now, now your job is to join your fellow recovering sinners at Highlands Community Church, plug into a community of authentic, authentic relationship, and walk step by step, book by book, through every book of the Bible with us here. Follow through in baptism, and then invite others into the same grace that you found here today. God bless you.